All right, Cable Smith, welcoming everybody into episode 30 of Campfire Conversations. Hope that you are uh, having a great start to 2023. I certainly am. Just got back from Mexico, did a little desert mule deer hunting there. More on that in a future episode, but uh, it didn't disappoint. Um, We've got a really interesting guest today. His name is Tom Kubanik of Secure It Tactical. And I will tell you this, um, I learned a lot about gun safes and firearm storage during this conversation, specifically some of the myths related to modern day safes. I mean, the one that's sitting behind me in the studio right now. Uh, yeah. Interesting stuff that I didn't know about. Never really even thought about, to be frank with you. But I walked away from this conversation thinking that was one of the most fun and interesting discussions I've had in a long time. Of course, we I think we talked for an hour and a half, so we deviate from safes and get into some other things as well. Shooting, um, this woke culture, destroying America, or trying to. Uh, luckily, there's people like myself and you and Tom that are uh, trying to prevent that from happening, but oof, it's an ongoing battle. Um, and, uh, and Tom also certainly an interesting background originally from the East coast, moved to California to pursue the music industry. Um, that didn't, uh, work out due to, I think maybe some health reasons, but uh, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Tom can explain all of that stuff, but Getting to where he is today and dealing with the United States military. I mean, that's how this company was started, Secure It Tactical. It's just a, a fascinating conversation. So I guess at this point, I'll uh, I'll stop carrying on about it and we'll actually go ahead and take a listen to that conversation with Tom Kubinick of Secure It Tactical. Well, Tom, thanks for jumping on today. It's nice to get to visit with you. Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure. I, I saw this come up on the calendar. And I think this was put together by uh, Chris, our head of marketing, and Emily, and then uh, Baker. Oh yeah, Black Rifle Coffee did the intro, I think. Yep, Baker's uh, Baker's a good dude and a friend yeah. of mine. And yeah, I was lis- listening to that podcast you did with them to to get a little more information on uh, on who you are exactly. I mean, I'm I'm familiar mm-hmm. with your company. Uh, some of our listeners might not be. So first of all, where where are you joining us from? I am in our. Uh, Call it our corporate office. It's in Syracuse, New York. Okay. Um, the company is predominantly a remote organization. Mm-hmm. So we've got the bulk of our staff is in, uh, I've got Tennessee, Florida, Georgia, down the Eastern seaboard. I've got somebody in California, Ohio, and we've got a small crew here. So interestingly, though, I was listening to that conversation and you, you lived in California and were like pursuing a music career as a guitarist. I graduated from high school. I started playing guitar when I was, I don't know, 13, 14. Um, in high school, I was playing in bands. And then graduate high school, played in uh, in bar bands for several years and uh, completely immersed myself in the idea that I was going to be a uh, professional guitar player. Uh-huh. So I played, in, uh, I played in a Judas Priest Iron Maiden cover band, which was just a blast. We had so much fun. It was a good, good band. We had a big crew, big trucks, and never had to touch gear. It was just really cool. I played in the Deep Purple, uh, kind of a cover band, and uh, smoke on the water. Oh yeah, and then yeah. 
we I ended up moving out to California and uh, pursued music, and I I did okay. You know, it's uh, Guitar Player Magazine in 1983 did an article on me as uh, one of the best unsigned, unknown guitar players. Oh, kind, wow. kind of kind of coming up through the ranks. So things were looking good. And then I developed really bad tendonitis and uh, it just basically killed the career. I, I oh. couldn't, I could not play more than 10 minutes. And, uh, and as, as a young man too. Yeah, it was, uh, I was 20, 23. I mean, I was right at the point of things were going good. Yeah. A lot of stuff was happening. And, uh, but you know what? It's, uh, I went through a tough year, but you know, when your back's against the wall, when you're, when you're faced with just, you know, a collapse of what you thought the world was, it does force you into create, it forces you into finding things. I had to survive. I took the only job I could get, which was telemarketing, um, typewriter and printer ribbons to businesses, um, for a little company, uh, San Fernando Valley and, uh, started doing that. I, I was, let me ask you a question. So, has telemarketing changed from then to now? Because when they call now, I just hang up. Like I don't even. It's like, it's uh, it was back then. It was it was new. Okay. It was different. It was not. And keep on. We were calling business to business. Mm. So I'm calling people who they're being paid to answer the phone. There's a big difference when when somebody calls you at your home or calls you on your cell phone. They're interrupting your day. If I'm yeah. calling a purchasing agent, that's his job. Right. So he's I mean, he is getting paid and. It was different. I was so bad. They moved me to a non-sales position because the manager liked me, but I saw where the money was. So I quit and worked for another company, straight commission, mm-hmm. selling printers, uh, you know, computer supplies and immersed myself in the world of sales. I read tons of books, listened to audio tapes to and from work every day and slowly figured it out. Two years later, um, left and started my own company doing the same thing in an apartment. I had two partners, I mean, we were, you know, three kids. <laughs> Yeah, in a in an apartment in a very bad neighborhood in the San Fernando Valley, uh, high crime, high drugs, but that's what we could afford. And uh, it was their apartment. I just drove over there. Our office, mm. my office, was a little cardboard box with a phone and leads. And every morning, I pull the box out and we'd go to work. And uh, a couple of years later, you know, four years later, we had eighteen sales reps in an office, and. Uh, it was a viable company. I sold off to I sold to my partners and went off on my own. Started Greenline Data. I'll move fast through this. Um, doing the same thing. Got into the internet and started writing websites in the late '90s. This is before e-com, um, mid late '90s, and ended up with TapeRack.com, which was the metal racks that would hold computer tapes. Back then, you know, companies would have thousands of tapes they'd back their computers up on, uh-huh. and uh, they had to store them all and organize them so you could actually retrieve data. So we had, you know, this reminds me of like, my mom was a dentist and you used to have everyone's files, like in a filing Mm -hmm. cabinet, right? Like same thing. It's the exact same thing. So it seems so antiquated now, but 10, even 10 years ago, that's how a lot, I mean, that's how the world worked. It was so um, tape rack.com. We became one of the largest sellers of tape racks in the country. And then that morphed into when the HIPAA laws came out, the, the healthcare information laws required all hospitals to lock up. Um, I should move this up to here. So I'm talking to the right. Uh, it required hospitals to lock up laptops. Mm. And uh, so we, we created laptopstorage.com, securelaptopstorage.com. And 
that website started growing. We, we did very well with the business. And a guy called me, it's like 2001, um, 2002. And he just said, hey, can you guys store an MP5? I'm like, sure. What's an MP5? Mm-hmm. And he goes, it's a little machine gun. And I started <laughs> laughing. I'm like, who is this? And he goes, he's with the FBI. And I said, I bet we can. So we started looking into it. And uh, I said, give me a week. I think we could do something. I started just look, you know, doing research. Very quickly found out the military had a significant problem transitioning from the M16 to the M4 battle rifle. And none of the racks they had worked because the rifle was shorter. It was modular, had attachments. And uh, we went to our manufacturer for the laptop cabinet and say, hey, what do you think about weapon racks? And the guy's name was Steve Moulton. He was the owner. He said, Tom, I'm already working on this for a project with the Canadian government. The company was in Canada. I said, you're kidding. I said, so we got together and put together a system that was called the Integrated Weapon Storage Platform. We sold that as a dealer in the U.S. for several years, but I, I needed to make changes for the U.S. military, and he didn't want to do the changes. We had a couple other issues, so I ended up developing my own solution, um, which we called the uh, – it was a tac- secure tactical weapon storage platform. Now it's simply called Cradle Grid, and we launched that in 2008, um, and we were a tiny company, and we launched that system. And st- so at this point in time, are you still in California? Yes. Okay. I no, I'm, no, I'm not. I, I moved from California to New York in 2006. Okay. Well, you so, went from the the furnace into the fire, moving from California to New York. Well, I grew <laughs> I grew up in Western New York, outside of Buffalo. Okay. And my wife has a huge family. We had three little kids. We decided to raise our kids in your family. Mm-hmm. But yeah, someday I'm going to move to America. That's what I always tell yeah. me. I, I mean, I, last time I was in California, some homeless guy spit on me because he asked me if I had any cash. And I was like, all I have is a credit card, which was true. Yeah. And his response was, oh, I'll just spit on you. And, you know, this now, is in I San won't, Francisco. Uh, I was like, I'm never going back to this state ever. No, I'm not. I'm not. And I, I saw a, uh, a mountain lion chowing down on somebody's dog on their back porch the other day. Which it gets even better because the mountain lion actually came into the house and grabbed the border collie, drug it out, and then the lady slammed the glass door and is videoing uh, this mountain lion sitting on her on her back porch. And I think the mountain lion was collared. So like I always say, like California is the the perfect uh, if you if you want to incorrectly manage firearms and wildlife look no further than than california it's it's a shame it's a beautiful state there's a lot oh, of neat things so that happen there's a lot of neat things that do there i lived there for 20 years mm-hmm. i won't go back really? i mean it simply is i just don't want them to receive any of my money even if uh-huh. it's just simply getting a cab from the airport i just don't want to contribute to the economy there i just what's happening is so wrong but people are leaving oh yeah they're state. coming here they're coming to yeah. texas left and right yep. same here i mean i've got a lot of people have moved from New York, we've had a lot of employees move down south from here. They still work for us, and yeah. Uh, yeah. at some point, I've got a lot of family here. Just parents that are getting older. There's a point when we will pack up and and move somewhere yeah. else. It's interesting because I, and I have friends that are that live in California, and you know, same thing. Like uh, a guy, a, a wild game chef that I know, uh, Jeremiah Dowdy. He's he's stuck in California until his wife's like gets her pension, and yeah. you know, yep. that'll be another. Eight, 10 years and Damn, he knows it sucks time. he's like i gotta he wants to move to texas right but yep. but anyway okay so uh sorry to interrupt you there but uh, no so um it was uh 2008 we launched the secure tactical weapon storage platform by 2011 we we're the primary suppliers to the u.s military mm-hmm. it just exploded and the idea for the system it goes back to we won a contract with u.s army special forces in 2000 it was 2007 yeah 
um, they put out a solicitation for a contract. They their armories were failing miserably, so they put. So the describe, describe what that what describe where your product sits. Like, is it in a big warehouse or where, it's where? An armories? Armories are the most secure location. One of those in, in a military base. Mm-hmm. So it's a concrete room within a building with a with a you know thick steel door. And yeah. there's security protocols to enter the armory. Once you're in there, it's rows of my weapon racks. It's just weapon racks holding guns. Uh-huh. The racks themselves are all secured to, uh, there's two security levels. AR-190-11 is Army, and then OPNAV-5313 is uh, Navy and Marine Corps. And those are the requirements that I need to build to. Okay. Um, okay. So they, they put out the solicitation to do an arms room assessment, meaning survey all their armories, tour them, look at them, and give them a report as to why they're failing. Now, we're a three-person company. Securit was a spinoff from Greenline Data, my previous business. Securit was a three-person company. We became aware of the solicitation, booked a meeting, got a meeting with a colonel at Fort Bragg, went down there, and I've got my, you know, Gary Myrick with me, who is a sales guy, and he looked like an operator. I mean, he just looked like a trigger puller. He wasn't, but he, he just looked the part, and he spoke, he spoke military really well. And uh, so we walk in with this colonel. I just introduced myself. Hi, Colonel, my name's Tom Kubinick. I'm the considered the leading authority in small arm storage and armory design. And I think we can do this contract for, I think we're the company. And we had a nice conversation for about 15, 20 minutes or so. And we got up, we left, we walked out and Gary's like, what, what was that? <laughs> and cause we didn't know anything about this really. We are so green. And I just looked and said, Gary, look, there's no experts in this. Nobody knows how to do this. We claimed it. As far as he knows, I, I'm the guy. There's, yeah. And there's nobody, nobody can argue that I'm not because there is no, there is no subject matter expert. We ended up winning the contract. I mean, we were up against like, you know, Harris, L3, these big defense contractors that put big money at it. We came in quite a bit less with a decent proposal. So I spent 18 months traveling all over the country spending a day or two in every armory, sitting with the armors, talking to them, watching them work, learning, watching the workflow, photographing, documenting all the problems. And over that 18 months, that's when we became the pros from door. I became the leading authority on small arm storage because nobody has ever had that kind of access or taken the time to dig into armory and weapon storage problems. Coming out of that- It's amazing to me that our government has, who knows how many of these millions upon millions of these- uh, firearms in in these armories and they don't have any way to store them like you would think well, you would have a storage system they okay, they well, did they yeah, did but then that became but, obsolete when they made right. a new rifle and they, they didn't have the it was like putting the cart before the horse a, a little bit it's one of those things though that the weapon systems comes out of the weapons development groups within the military weapon racks are facilities that's yeah. that, that's grouped as the same thing as file cabinets you know what I mean? So it's it's a right. different color. We say it's a different color money. It's a different group of people doing it. And they don't talk really well all the time. So the problem was there. And quite often, you know, they don't solve a problem until they have it. Right. But this scaled so quickly. And the armories were a mess. I mean, there was, there was crap everywhere. High value optics, thermal imaging, stuff just piled on the floor. So, uh, you know, we did our presentation to command and at the same time, launched the secure tactical weapon storage platform. They loved our solution. And the, the big difference, now there were two other players in the space coming in with us. Um, 
the Canadian firm and then another U.S. firm, and they made a modular weapons rack where it's a you know it's a metal rack. It's a, basically a cabinet with locking doors, and inside you have different components for all the guns. So it doesn't matter what kind of gun you have. You use like a Mark 19 grenade launcher. You have that bracket. You have an M4 has this bracket. A 50 cal has this bracket. They had a different bracket for every gun. So they had uh, the one firm had 72 different brackets. The other one had 180 different components. Our solution was a standardized cabinet with one moving part. The one part would hold everything from the smallest submachine gun up to shoulder launch systems. And it was was super simple. It required no really directions. So the armor could walk up to a weapon rack with a gun in his hand, adjust it, put it in, step away. And then we also, our system incorporates gear, which nobody else had ever addressed. In a really unique way, it's uh, we use bins, bins you could buy at Home Depot. Mm. And inside my rack, you can source all sorts of storage materials from any hardware store. So all of your all of their attachments, optics, the IR illuminators to slings to all sorts of this, all this gear would just get stored in and around the, the weapons or behind the weapons in a really organized way. So when they're doing their inventories, they're doing their site counts, which serialized inventory would take a special forces armory. It could take them two days to do it was a standard system. With my system, they could do it in two hours because everything was so visible. And uh, we, we just rock and roll. The, the company just exploded. And we were just, we were jamming. I, I had purchased a plane. I'm a pilot. And I was flying all over the Northeast. And we just were on top of the world. And then sequestration hit in the Obama years. And- I'm not an Obama supporter, but it wasn't his issue. It was a congressional issue. Sequestration, if you remember, was Congress was struggling to pass a budget. Right. So to make to to get this budget through, they said, okay, we have to do these cuts. Well, nobody would agree. So, okay, here's what we're going to do. If we can't get these cuts in in the future, if we can't get this this thing balanced, these are forced military cuts that will be so severe that we will, of course, get a budget. They never got the budget. The sequestration hit, and it cut it cut the financing off to the military. Mm-hmm. And we went from just rock stars to I went five months without a single order, just making wow. payroll, paying rent, and I burned through everything I had. We ended up laying off people. I sold everything I owned down to. We were starting to. My wife and I were looking at a little house. We had a house on a lake. It's a nice house, and we were looking at little farmhouses. It was the last asset we had, and. Just trying to keep things moving. So I laid, the plane I was down went bye bye. Oh yeah, oh yeah. That was the first thing to go was the plane. <laughs> um, but you know what? We uh, we came out of it. We're, again, we're down to a four person company again, and uh, it was at that time we decided to go into retail and say, you know what? No matter how good we are, no matter how cool our product is, no matter what we think or our customer thinks, if Congress shuts off the money, I'm dead. I I, just, I I have no, there's nothing I can do. And what's the difference between the, the military marketplace versus the civilian? Well, in the marketplace. civilian marketplace, each civilian, each person makes a determination whether they're going to spend money or not. Right. So if you- With dollars you gotta, and cents, like, you know- Okay, it, size of the market? Yeah. Okay, this is, again, my eyes were eyes wide shut in the early days, and I didn't realize this. The military market in its heyday was about $27 million a year. In its heyday. Right now, the military market is somewhere between three and six million, maybe. It's really small. For, we for your product, change. for your industry. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, the consumer market, it's hard to get exact numbers, 600 to 900 million a year. 
Huh. Okay. So you can. And, well, I mean, you right. know, there's what do they say? There's 330 million guns. Uh, no, that's how many people yeah. there are in yeah. America. How many guns? I can't remember what that number uh, was. It's 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 a big number, but it's very. You see, I have a gun safe behind me. Yeah. I think most people listening to this show probably have some way to store their weapons, yeah. right? Uh, a lot of people don't. It's shocking. And we can talk about, there's some things we can talk about that just surprised me. Okay, well, do most people, I think a lot of people don't until they get to like, okay, well, now I have 10 guns. What am I going to do with them all? Like that's It's possible. A lot of first-time buyers, though, I think they're doing the right thing. They need to get a safe. They need to lock up their guns. But uh, yeah, it, it's really frustrating for us because you know, one of our missions is to make sure every single gun in America is properly secured. Every gun in America. But- just because your guns are locked doesn't mean you can't have silent, fast access. Wrong. Two to three second access silently to those firearms. And that's that's kind of where we come in. Do you guys make one of the fingerprint things? No. Okay, never. good. Because my wife, before we had kids, I just slept with a handgun yep. on the bedside table. Now we have three kids. Once once they could walk, she was like, okay, no more. Uh, so now all the guns, you know, I'm ashamed to say, stay in the gun safe. And she bought me one of those little, you know, fingerprint things. I couldn't get a damn handgun out of that thing in, in a minute if I wanted to. Nope. Like, this is pointless. It is now in the closet where <laughs> where the overflow of my guns are. So now right. that the kids are older, and I, you know, it, this is totally off topic, but how you raise your kids, my kids won't touch a gun. Right. Uh, that's just that's just how they are. So it's got, she's gotten a little more lenient. You know, there's probably... The overflow from the safe now is in the closet, and uh, it's um yeah the fingerprint readers. I get asked that all the time. Why don't you guys do fingerprint readers? Suck. Well, we consider it again. My background is military. You know, we do we do all the SEAL teams. We do all the reaction, you know, rapid response teams, mm-hmm. reaction force teams. These are fast moving, fast access, lots of gear, lots of guns, lots of dynamics. That's my background. That's what I bring to the table. So we look at consumer civilian handgun storage. We consider this never fail equipment. Never fail means if somebody breaks into your house and they're shooting at you, you can't sit there and, and goof around with your safe trying to get it open. Mm-hmm. Fingerprint readers, if your hands are dirty, they won't open. If your hands are wet, they won't open. If you're wearing gloves, they won't open. If your skin is really dry, they won't open. There's a lot of factors that make these things not work. We don't use them because we have a simple, simple locking solutions that if you know the combination, they open up 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. So it's ne- it's a never fail piece of equipment. And again, and that's kind of the way, the way we, all, we look at everything that we do is if you're going to have own firearms, all firearms need to be secured. And then if you're well, going to lock What about the firearms house, behind you? For the people listening, you've got 10, 12, 15 guns yep. on the wall behind you. So are you in some kind of secure room or... This is a studio. No, I we okay. do have a secure vault here, uh-huh. and we bring the guns out and set up the studio for podcasts and for videos, okay. and then we put right. the guns away. Yeah. It's so a good there, look. when I people like come it. to visit the office, we set up the office displaying yeah. a lot of firearms, a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that we can do. Uh-huh. But when we when I, when this podcast is over, I'm gonna walk out of this here and we're gonna come in and we're gonna take it all down and everything gets everything gets buttoned up. So it's okay. it's very secure here. Yeah. Um uh-huh. so we're big on that, but if I get frustrated, there's when you look at tragedies in America from unlocked firearms, it's not, I mean, it's usually a, a friend visit. And you see these ones like I've got people I talk to, you know, well, you know, my wife and I don't have kids. We're in our we're in our 60s now. And uh, 
we're, you know, it's just the two of us and boom, you don't worry about it. I said, okay. So here's the kind of crazy stuff. If you look at some of the tragedies, next door neighbor is a family, guy's 34, wife's 30, two kids. He has a massive heart attack, goes to the hospital, wife's in the ambulance. What are we going to do is, oh, we'll watch the kids next door neighbors. They, they all get along great. So, okay, keep an eye on the kids. The guy's not doing well, probably not going to make it. The kids end up being in the neighbor's house for several, several days. He's got unsecured, a couple of handguns, rifles in the home. He's not thinking about that because the whole world's kind of goofy right now with what's going on. You're setting up a scenario for another tragedy. And when you look at some of the things that happen when kids and people have the accidental shootings, the accidental discharges, anything along those that chain, you break the chain, it doesn't happen. And it's always crazy things you never would think would happen. But if the guns had simply been locked, that would have broke the chain. When, when you look at the Newtown, uh, was it Lanza? He walked into his mom's house, picked up her rifle, turned and fired twice and killed her. That quick. She never, she probably never spoke. He mm-hmm. was just, had her guns been locked, he would have walked in. And if nothing, there's no guarantee it would have prevented anything, but at least she had time. Possibly she could have assessed that he had blown a fuse, that something was wrong. And she could have reacted in a way that would have either got him off the street, got him help or something. She never had the chance because she had, I think it was two rifles. It was a, she, I think she was shot with a 22 mm-hmm. twice in the chest. But again, nobody ever knows. She'll, she'll, she never had the opportunity. This kid I played soccer with in like grade school, we, we had quit playing soccer together and I didn't, we didn't go to the same school. I didn't keep up with him. But I found out like two years after we quit playing, he was looking for Christmas presents and found his dad's handgun and he shot and killed himself. Yep. And he was probably 11. Yeah. You know? It's, um, I, you hear these stories all the time. And it's not, it's, it's point, it's, it's frustrating because there's a lot of solutions out there that will solve that. Everything we do is ultra light and lightweight gun safes. And our solution is extremely modular, properly stores, properly holds firearms, and it integrates gear. Mm. And that's something that like the traditional gun safes, they force you to do things one way. The little W's are cut. They only work one way, and you're forced to do it that way. It's a mess. And this safe behind me, yeah. all the guns are bumping each other. It's Yeah. No, it's it's most of the damage. There's an article in Truth About Guns about wear and tear. The, the, the biggest cause of wear and tear to firearms are going in and out of traditional gun safes. Our solution is extremely modular, extremely flexible. Um, the Marine Corps refers to it uh, like Pendleton. They call it the Tetris rack. A third group, special forces at Fort Bragg, they call it the Lego rack because they start at the bottom and they just build. And when I look at our system, it's the same system we use for consumer, uh, our consumer group, it's just smaller cabinets. When we get customer photos, no two racks are ever configured the same because you have 100% control of how you set up, how your guns are stored, where they're gored, how you put, you know, gear, everything, everything about your whole, you know, everything you do with firearms associated can be stored with those firearms if you have a proper solution like you know we're we're in hunting season now it's just rifle season here just ended on sunday now we're into muzzleloader mm-hmm. and they'll have a late muzzleloader after christmas but you know at my house i've got an agile quad system it's two six rifle cabinets two six rifle smaller cabinets on top bolted together this big quad so i've got my hunting rifles on one side I hunt primarily with lever action. I um, see a couple of those behind, three of them behind. Yeah, I, I really like 
just old school. Now I've got a couple of long range, a couple of places I'm, uh, we've got a hunting ranch. If I'm setting up for long range, I'll bring out, I've got a six, five Creedmoor that will go way out. Oh, yeah. um, but for the most part, I like to still hunt. I like to move around. So it's either a 30, 30 or a 45, 70 with a flat nose. Um, bullet really short range but it goes through brush like like crazy but my cabinets are set up i've got rifles and the cabinet above is configured with shelves and bins so i've got calls all everything that i use for deer hunting is even clothing you know that my orange that there's some like warm weather gear i don't put in there yeah. but i've got all the stuff organized and stored uh so every hunting season i'm not you know jumping around trying to get all my crap together it's all organized stored and I say, I mean, really like hyper organized in that if I'm going to still hunt, I've got a bin with all the stuff I'm going to take out. If I've got, if I'm doing, if I'm just going to one of my big blinds, it's a different box of stuff I'll grab. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I always tell people if, uh, if the wife's not in the hunting, if your gear is organized, stored and out of sight, you can always buy more. If it's a mess and all over the place, she'll give you a hard time. Every time you buy, everything you walk in the house is something new. She just views it as more crap that's going to fill up wherever it's going. Uh, being in this industry for as long as I have been, you know, boxes show up about once a week from yep. sponsors or a startup company on Instagram. And so I, I, I just don't have the, the space to store it a lot of times. And like, if you open the closet in my studio here, it would just be like, crap would just be falling out of there. Yeah. It's, uh, so I could be, I could definitely get more organized. There's no doubt about that. Uh, I think, yeah, I think a lot of us struggle with that. I'm kind of a gearhead. Um, I like buying gear. I like, I like nuts. I like, you know, tricking out rifles, building an AR platform, mm-hmm. just and really kind of playing with stuff. And when you do that a lot, you end up with a lot of parts. And part of our system, you know, the bin system, I've got an AR, if I've got like an AR 15, I'm going to have bins behind it within the rack. And all the components I'm not using are stored right with that gun. If I've got a really odd caliber, I'll have the cleaning brushes and things stored in a bin with that rifle because it's that's kind of when I need it. Oh uh, yeah. So I had ton- to I went on a muzzleloader hunt in Nebraska a couple weeks ago and it was one of those deals where, okay, where's my 50 cal cleaning brush and yep. swab? You know how dirty those things get. Yep. And it's like a, you know, 30 minute ordeal of trying to f- go through that closet where all the crap is and be like, where is that damn thing? Finally find it, you know, but, uh, no, I've got a, uh, my muscle loader is I've got one. It's, it's, it's a cheap gun, but right behind it, I've got the lower, the lower bin is a long bin where I've got that, you know, the brass low, I don't know who makes it. it's a little brass measuring device. And mm-hmm. I've got the little thing for pushing the round through the butt. I've got cleaning products. I've got the breech screw and breech my lube, you know, the breech lube, all the stuff the that I use butter, the muscle yeah. loader. It's all organized with that rifle. So when it's muzzleloader season, I simply, I've got a little pack that I pack everything up in, go to the range, beat myself up to make sure the sights are good and uh, uh-huh. go uh, out and uh, have at it. Cal will do that for sure. It's, I do, I, I do it to myself every year is uh, I've been dial, trying to play with, a, a trying to find a BDC scope for the 50, mm-hmm. you know, the bullet drop, which you know, Nikon had those for long range rifles. I think it was really kind of silly. I like the long range shoot and it's, but for hunting like a, uh, a 300 blackout BDC has got those dots going down in the scope. When you go to like a muzzle loader, you have to go out to a range and I've got like, you know, a card printed on the side of the rifle. I just taped it on there and I've got those points on that scope dialed in. So I've got a hundred yards, 
you know, it's 210, 270. And I just dial it in. So if I've got a longer range shot, I can look at the stock and I've got my yeah. dots of where it's going. Well, mine, mine is uh, eight inches of drop at 200 yards. And after yeah. that, I'm not taking the shot. I'm just like, no, eh, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's getting for me. That's I do that with 4570 as well. Cause there's so much drop in it, but it still is carrying so much energy if you can get it right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm trying to find the right scope for that. Cause I want to get out to two, about 200, 210. I mean, but at 200 yards between hundred and 200, 100, 200, you got a lot of drop. I want to find those in between points. So yeah. I keep changing the optic on it. And I always end up doing it in like you are a gearhead. You like to you like to fidget with stuff. I, I do, but I always wait till it's getting cold out. And sighting in and playing with a muzzle loader when it's like 38 degrees out, it's horrible. And I always end up in that scenario kind of like well, I can't wait any longer. Your hands are cold, the gun's cold. It's just uh mm-hmm. I always tell them every year, it's like next year, July, 78 degrees. I'm gonna sit out here, relax with a nice you're not gonna do it. No, probably not. <laughs> What's a what's a nice whitetail buck in Western New York, like score wise? You know, I'm I'm not. I don't know enough about that aspect of hunting mm-hmm. to even tell you. I mean, I shoot a. I mean, we don't take anything, you know, six point or bigger, and the six point's got to be huge. Okay. We're looking at eights and tens and bigger mm-hmm. on my property. Um, I'm not that experienced of a hunter. I don't travel. I've, I'm I'm hunting here locally. And it's kind of, we got what we got. So sure. our deer do not get as big as the ones they get in like Ohio or I mean, um, yeah, Iowa. I've got yeah. a friend that hunts Iowa and their deer are just bigger. Oh yeah. But they're a heck of a lot Ohio, bigger than what Ohio too, Illinois. Yeah. Uh, we have big rack deer in Texas, but it's weird. Yep. We have really three different body sizes. We have North Texas deer, which are big. Then we yep. have hill country deer, which are tiny. And then South Texas deer, they get big again. What's the uh, what's the other one? The species that they brought in is it ibex or what's what's a small deer that I see when I'm out there? It, well, we have axis deer, but those are axis. That's right the there. one that that's yeah. not that's not a native species though, is it? No, that's from India. Yeah, yeah. Or they they call them the chital, but mostly they live in you know in in uh, India and tigers eat them. You know, so, so uh, we get yeah, uh, they'll run whitetail off of a feeder. They're and they're yeah. also I think smarter than whitetail. They are they're wary, very wary. It's been a tough year here. Um, we had a lot of nice bucks on camera, but my uh, a friend of mine's wife took a nine point nice, nice size deer with a bow, and uh, I've got I got a big doe, and just because I'm sitting there waiting, finally it's getting late in the season, so I put some meat in the freezer. Yeah, we dropped a big doe, but uh, we've do got you bow hunt too. I do, and okay. I never. This year was bad for me bow hunting. I never had a shot. Um, I saw, I saw a couple of bucks that I would not have shot. They were too small, but I had never had anything walk by me close at all. Um, I could hear them. And it was just, it was, it was one of those years where, I mean, it sounds like they're ripping a house down there. You hear bucks chasing a doe and you could hear all this stuff in the brush. And, uh, no, never, never, just, this didn't happen this year. And our whole area, I've got, I have 500 acres. I'm up against a big state preserve and I've got some farmers next to me that have decent properties. Opening day, I heard four shots. Hmm. That's it. I mean, there are years where you hear a shot every 20 minutes. I was sitting in my, I, I lease a place in Oklahoma, uh, well, a different place now, but one I had about five years ago 
and I was sitting in the blind opening day of rifle season, and they only have a two-week rifle season there. With Texas, we start, we rifle hunt from the first weekend in November until mid-January. It's long. Yeah. But opening day in Oklahoma is a huge deal because it's a short season. And I lost count at like 25. I just stopped counting. It was all That's directions, some... everywhere. It was like, good Lord. I had never, ever experienced that before in Texas. Yeah. Our our rifle season is, you know, 14 days, 15, 15 days, maybe. It's mm. two weekends plus a little extra, maybe. Yeah. And then uh, bow season is October 1st is when it opens. That's way too early to be. I know guys that go out, but it's crazy. Yeah. Um, and then we got muzzle loader now. And there's a break at Christmas, and the week between Christmas and New Year's is late muzzleloader, and then it ends on December 31st. And I'll get out. We've had it was so warm here. It just you know, I'm in a bow. I'm in a tree stand with a bow, wearing shorts and a t-shirt. It just doesn't seem <laughs> right. like hunting season up here. But uh, we finally got some snow on the ground, and that makes it visually, it makes it a lot easier because uh, my property is, is very heavily wooded. There's a lot of brush. And it's hard to see. Yeah. But uh, once there's snow in the ground, uh, it does make it a lot easier. So I'm hoping to get out one last opportunity at a at a slammer. And we were talking off the air. So do you have a crossbow too? Yep. I've got a uh I just got a new right. I just I bought a new with the VX, the new Matthews regular bow this year. It's expensive. I said, mm-hmm. I'm gonna invest in a new bow. But I, I had a shoulder injury. I've not been able to draw a bow for five years. And I finally I rehabilitated my shoulder just working out hard. And God, so I could do it. Never, never got to shoot at anything. Yeah. And we have a crossbow season. Um, it's late bow season. And I pulled the crossbow up for, I was out with a couple of days with it. Um, you know, I've never shot a crossbow. It's, as a, yeah, it's, it's, I view that as hunting with a really short range rifle. Mm. And I've got, I've got a friend of mine who hunts my property with me and he was very against crossbow and he's a big he he travels a well, lot you know what you can tell him well you just find somewhere else to hunt then buddy well but he was against <laughs> it until he had a significant injury on a property and uh he can't draw a bow i'm not sure he can i, I think he can draw one now mm-hmm. um but he last for a couple of years he couldn't draw a bow and he went to a crossbow and after using it he's like you know i'm not he, too from, he goes from, from a humane standpoint we make such better shots with a crossbow. He's like, I, I get it now. I understand the crossbow thing. Mm-hmm. I just think there's a, I don't know what, it, if it's not ergonomic, there's there's something about the drawing of a, but the whole process that's just, you're more connected with what you're doing. A crossbow is like a rifle, is another level of disconnection from what you're actually doing. Right. Um, right. It's just what I it seems see like. It. I could see that. Less organic. I mean, is the word, or, I'm not sure what organic but there's a well, it's less primal for sure. It is that's the word primal is it's just you're going back, you're going back way back with that bow. Mm-hmm. Um, now again, modern compound bows are pr- pretty amazing with what they can do, right? <laughs> compared right. to uh, I mean, heck, just compared to the bows of 20 years ago, it's uh, oh, yeah, it's oh, just 100%. unbelievable. Um, so. The consumer market, obviously, a much bigger place for you guys. It is. How, what? How many different safes or storage units? I mean, do you offer just the average? Our our rifle solutions, which is the core, our core system, our cradle grid system, our patented system that we've we still are the global leader in military weapon storage. Mm-hmm. Retail's bigger part of our business now, but we still do. We build armories all over the world. 
same system. We have uh, our fast box, which is a, a very small, holds one rifle horizontal with a rifle, maybe a handgun or two. It can go vertical and hold two rifles. It comes with hardware to mount to a bed frame or mount in a closet. Very fast access, very secure. Then we go to our Agile line, which is a six rifle. It's the ultralight gun safe, weighs 110 pounds. And you still, you bolt it, you bolt it in place. And it offers no less security. It just, you don't have the weight, all the drywall, all the all the nonsense of a gun safe. Then we jump up to our answer line, which is a eight gun and a 12 gun. The 12 gun, it looks more like a traditional safe. It's a double door safe. Everything we do, firearm storage wise, is one row of guns. Hmm. We'll never put guns behind guns. There's no reason to ever do that. The military, you can't, I mean, it's it's part of my requirements. You know, an armor opens up a rack with one arm, they remove a rifle, they close the rack and lock it with one hand. So you're never they never lay stuff on the ground, they're never digging through stuff. Everything we do is one row of guns. We call it straight line access. A lot of advantages there. Your rifles are free and clear. Nothing's ever touching. Our system allows for optics up to a five-inch thermal imaging, so you're never going to lose zero. Furthermore, if you've got a lot of guns packed into a safe, do you know if you're missing a 22? Uh, <laughs> there's been times where I'm like, where's that handgun? Exactly. Exactly. So trip. with our solution, we you know visual inventory, you can open the doors up, glance at it. You know if something's missing. You know it's there. My wife would be pissed if she heard me say that about a handgun, like the, yeah, the unloaded rifles and shotguns that have yeah. spilled out now from the safe to the closet. No, it's uh, lax on that, but a handgun, she'd be like, Whoa, boy. But <laughs> our solution, you know, when you buy a safe, you buy the safe, and there it is. <clears throat> people buy our solution. It's really fascinating the comments and the emails that we get back from people because they've got the solution, and what they're always writing is, Yeah, I got safe, I got installed. This, then I went back two days later and redid it. He goes, then I said, I had all my guns out. I'm sitting there. I said, I, he goes, I spent four hours just reconfiguring it, trying different things out to see what I really liked because it's so flexible in what you can do right. in terms of integrating how you store your rifles and all the gear that you associate with them. Um, from okay, shelf so if, to bins to trays to... If I have, I don't know how many guns are in that safe. A lot. And there's yeah. probably double digits in the closet now that don't fit in there. Mm -hmm. So what is the biggest? Uh, 12. We have a 12 gun safe. Okay. 12, 12. But 12. let me, let's talk about that. The big dinosaur safe. The one behind me. Yeah. Yeah. It, a lot of people do that. They, that was a pain in the if ass you go to, move, if you go to a, a safe distributor dealer or you talk to people quite often, you'll hear them say, buy the biggest safe you can afford. Cause you're going to end up with more guns. You're going to grow into it. The problem is, the gun safe does not store guns in a manner or they don't, it doesn't align with why we own guns. There's, there's, there's a real disconnect there. Our solution is buy, don't buy the biggest safe, buy what you need. If you get more guns, buy another one. And if you're going to lock up guns in your home, well, lock them up where they make sense. Again, our agile cabinets are small and lightweight. Our answers are a little bigger, but they're still shallow. They're not deep. They all fit in closets. They all fit in discrete locations. So we use what we call decentralized storage, which is something we actually went through with the military post 9-11 when we actually broke up armories. And this was not going too many detail on it, but there are armories that were more uh, diplomatic security groups, groups. These are armories that were 
public facing a little bit, massive armories, and they realized they can't get operators to a central point. So they broke up these armories. And these are like government cities into smaller armories located all over cities, all in all over areas, because mm-hmm. that way you can always get to something. Well, in your home, when you look at, if you're looking from a security standpoint, I can open up your safe in, I can remove guns from your safe in about 22 seconds. I'll not touch the door. I don't care about the door. Now, the, the manufacturer's safe is going to give you a brochure with, with about the safe and say, we got three different security levels, level one, level two, level three. You've got bolts, you got corner bolts, you got welded plates up to steel, plate steel on the door. And those are your three security levels. I'm simply going to pick up a little circular saw blade at Home Depot. They sell to the concrete industry. It's used for cutting rebar, up to half inch thick rebar, actually one inch thick rebar. Mount that up in my 1987 skill saw that I bought at Home Depot the year I got married. I'm going to cut a hole in the side of your safe as fast or faster than I can cut three-quarter inch plywood. People mm-hmm. are shocked how fast. It's 11 gauge. It's, it's somewhere between nine. Most safes are 11 to 12 gauge. Some are 14. That's higher numbers, thinner. Like your, your, your Liberty safes, most of those are 11 gauge. Mm-hmm. I cut through it as fast as I can cut through plywood. And that's how safes are open. They're not pried open. They're cut open. So when you look at securing firearms in a home, well, we look at FBI crime data. A thief breaks into your home. What's he doing? Where is he going? How long is he going to be in there? You know, what, what are the data? Well, odds are the break-in is going to happen between noon and one o'clock in the afternoon. Most break-ins occur during the daytime. Thieves are in and out of your home in less than nine minutes. They're hitting master bathroom, master bedroom, home office den, dining room. They're gone. They're moving very quickly. The time in the home is time at risk. They want prescription drugs, number one item. Then they're going to quickly scan for valuables in the master bedroom. They're going to hit home office den for anything electronic they can grab. And then dining room, maybe for silver or something. Again, they want to get out of there quickly. So you look at home firearm. Now, if they know there's a safe in the home, it's more organized. They're going to go after the safe. They'll find it. You know, big safes. There's a lot of stupidity in marketing on safes we can talk about. But when we look at decentralized storage, Okay, so secure guns where it makes sense. Master bedroom is a worse place from a security standpoint, but it's where we sleep. So one arm, I do one firearm per person if they're both trained, husband and wife. If it's just one person trained, one fire. I have an AR-15 in a fast box under my bed. It's racked, ready to roll. I've got, I'm two second. I'm so good at it because I practice. So I go to bed about once a week now. I used to do it every night. I turn the lights off. I reach down in the dark. I practice my combination, open it, and just close it. So I know that if the crap hits the fan and it goes crazy, if somebody's shooting in your house, it's crazy. I'm still going to, because of muscle memory, I'll be armed behind my bed at that door in about four seconds. It's going to be really fast. Next, I look at kitchen. Thieves ignore kitchens. Fast access, a small handgun, fast access safe in a drawer on the side of a cabinet. I've got a decent firearms collection. I'm also, I'm not a handgun shooter. It's just not, I'm just not, I'm not big on handguns. So I've got a agile six gun cabinet in my pantry. Part of my collections in there just being stored. I've also got an AR 15 racked ready to roll front closet next to my front door. I've got a cabinet with a pump shotgun with rounds in the tube and an AR 15. I've got a choice there. Both are good defense guns ready. I've also, again, got part of my collection in that room. And then I kind of, and there's a whole process on our website about decentralized storage. But again, my gun collection, instead of being in one big safe, is located in safes throughout my home. A couple of things happen. 
I'm never more than two to three seconds away from a firearm. And if you came to my house to visit, you'd never know I own a firearm. Mm. Whereas a big gun safe sits in the corner of a room. It sits in the basement. Now, I've seen brochures from Liberty, from Fort Knox, from a lot of these companies. It drives me nuts because, again, I'm not a gun safe guy. I'm a military defense guy. But they've got the picture of it's the room with the, you know, the ultimate man room, pool table, river rock fireplace, the view of the Rockies out the windows like Aspen. And in the corner is this beautiful maroon gun safe with this Wild West lettering on it. And the brochure is talking about heritage, heirloom, showpiece. Is what it's talking about? Think about those words they're using. I'm just, I'm like, are you out of your mind? The most valuable stuff that you own is probably in this safe and all your guns. Yeah. And you're going to put it in the middle of a room to show it off. It's crazy. I mean, if you really think about the actual mechanics of this, it's nuts. The best security. It might look like I'm showing that one off, but uh, that one's just there out of necessity. Yeah. It's it's because it's so big. It's the only place it fits because it's so big, but. But it's also cool. I'll say one one thing for it though. Is, uh... Oh, there you go. All right. You can put a black bear on it. You can put a yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's you a know, full the body mounted black bear. Yeah. Of the the biggest thing you can do for security is secrecy. Mm-hmm. And anybody, I mean, truly, the number one thing you can do to prevent home invasion, to prevent break-ins, has nothing to do with firearms. It's simply motion sensor lights in the front of your house. Cut the bushes, plant. If you got a lot of overgrowth in the front of your house, cut it back and light it. Thieves are like bullies in elementary school. They're not looking for a fight. They're looking for the weakest kid. They're looking for the easiest target. And if you're, if they walk up to your house and th- lights come on, they're going to go to your neighbor. They're going to go somewhere else. So it's, I always tell people, it's like, yeah, we all buy firearms for home defense. The last thing I want to do is have something in my house that I feel I've got to shoot at. Right. So harden your home first and just simple motion sensor lights. They're cheap. will stop the, the vast majority of break-ins. So what is the like MSRP on your 12 gun? Um, the, our, our, our cabinets start at, so you don't even six, call it a safe. You call it a cabinet. No, they're, they're safes. They, they okay. are safe cabinets. It's six ninety nine on up to about twenty nine ninety nine. Uh-huh. 3,000. And, and then are, we have, we have the, the combination safe. process is for to unlock is what um, push button. They're all push button locks of various various integrated levels. Our top our answer safes, our biggest safes use secure them uh, standard safe safe lock, but it's a very simplified secure them with a very simple combination code, so you can do it very quickly. Uh-huh. Um, okay. And right now we're going to be making some changes in our locking going forward this year into a more integrated solution across all of our platforms. We just, the company was growing so fast. We said, okay, let's get this done. And we kind of, so we ended up with different locks, but uh, I use mostly the agile cabinets. We call that the ultralight gun safe. The answer is called the answer because it's the answer to the question. You know, I really like big safes, but I'm not ready for an ultralight. So this is the answer. And then we do make the true safe. The true safe by its name is a true safe. And what I'm saying by true safe is it's made in the original patented design of Silas Herring, who patented the the the, tr- the first fireproof secure safe in 1865. Now, the Herring Safe Company was one of the biggest safe companies in the country. And true fire rated safes are still made like that. 
gun safe industry really came out in the 70s and started growing only to make a gun safe in that design, which and the design is, it's a small steel box with the guns are in it, a larger steel box filled with concrete in between. Like our true safe is three inches of concrete on the sides, four inches on the door, sandwiched in between steel. And it's a beast. Now the gun safe industry to make safes like that, they're so heavy, it was not practical. So they got rid of the outer steel, they got rid of the concrete. And basically what they make is a steel box then they line it with drywall and carpeting. And that's now the modern gun safe. They did that in the 70s. And the insurance industry was came forward and said, well, what do you make? What is this? You know, we've, we're insuring homes, we're insuring firearms collections. What is this? So Underwriters Laboratory, UL, was created in the late 1800s by the insurance industry to rate electrical components when America went electric there was a real risk of fire and fire insurance companies created UL to make sure that all electrical components components going into homes met a certain standard of safety. Mm-hmm. They added safes to that in the like 1910, 1920s. So UL rates safes on levels of security. There's class A, B, C. There's, there's a whole class rating from small safes to and jewelry stores on up to bank vaults. So the gun safe industry was making these boxes, these safes, And UL was brought in to give them a rating and understand what they were. So they came up with a rating. And your safe has this rating. In fact, every gun safe sold in America, for the most part, is class UL class RSC. RSC stands for Residential Security Container. Okay. The word safe is missing. UL would not allow the use of the word safe because they didn't feel these met the the minimum standard to be called a safe. And the the test to be a, a class RSC is you have to block access for five minutes from somebody with a pry bar of less than 18 inches, a hammer of less than five pounds, and a small hand drill. That's 1950s threat level. You come at these things with a modern circular saw, you open them up like butter. And that's why the best security is secrecy. My safes are, I mean, again, I'm not saying you, you can cut my safe open too, mm-hmm. but odds are you're not going to find mine. And you're really preventing targets of opportunity, smash and grab the quick move stuff. A thief, if you're gone for the weekend, let's say, and and a thief knows you guys are gone and on vacation for a week, they're going to spend some time in your home. They see you're safe. They're going to get it open. They're going to clean it out. If you decentralize with a lot of smaller cabinets, eventually they may find one and they'll get it open. Interesting statistic with thieves, when they find something of value, they leave. Because now, once they find something, one thing of value, they like, wow, there's something here. They get out because now the clock is ticking. They're going at greater. They've won. Right. So once they find something of value, they don't stay in the house. They leave. So when you decentralize, worst case scenario, you might lose four or five guns, but you won't lose your whole collection. Mm-hmm. Again, the odds of break-ins are so rare. And uh, we we don't have a fire rating. Nothing we do with a fire rating. Uh, we... the the. The biggest thing with your safe does not have, I mean, it has a sticker on it. Mm-hmm. And I know the safe, I know that that brand that you have, and I can pretty much guarantee there's no testing. It's just a sticker on the door. Mm-hmm. And I met with a manufacturer because we were going to OEM a safe. We we're going to have a safe made. When I first went in the retail, we didn't know anything about safes. So I met with a manufacturer to make us a safe. And it, I look at these safes, they're all 60-minute rating. And I said, well, if I'm going to go into business, I want to do something different. I said, could you do a 90-minute rating? He goes, absolutely. 
So what would you do different? He goes, we just change the sticker on the door. <laughs> That's what he said. I'm, 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 I'm not kidding. We just changed the sticker on the door. I said, I said but I said, isn't there any testing? He goes, no, we just put whatever sticker, they made, whatever sticker the company wants. This is a company that made safes for a lot of different brands. Wow. Whatever they want, we put on it. And now you've got the big manufacturers, they test their safes. And we tested our true safe. The test is it goes into an oven. They put temp probes in the safe. They run the oven up to 1300 degrees and then they then they wait. And as a temperature inside the safe comes up, once it busts 350 degrees, that the test is over. So if your safe goes like 70 minutes, it's a one hour rated safe. If it goes, you know, 50 minutes, they give it a 45 minute rating. That's how it works. Hmm. Our true safe went into an oven and it was sitting outside on a trailer. The safe was 94 degrees when we went into the oven. So we're already 20 degrees above where we should be. We went two hours and 20 minutes, hmm. which is, that's great. I would give that safe a 45 minute rating. And the reason is it's a static test. The air is not moving. So a great way to look at it. If you've got a pizza in the oven, you, you know, oven doing a pizza is 450 degrees. Right. You could put your hand in that oven and hold it there. I'm going to bet you could go a minute. You might go longer. It's slowly going to heat up to the point where you got to get it out because it's going to burn. But it takes a while. Now, take a small jet engine with exhaust at 450 degrees coming out of that engine at 60 miles an hour. Put your hand in that stream. It's going to burn the skin off your bones in, in seconds, half a second. You have yeah. third degree burns in a nanosecond because of the convective nature of heat, how that works. A fire in your home, a raging fire, air is moving in excess of 60 miles an hour. It rips safes apart. They don't have a chance. Huh. So the whole fire, we posted a video. We shot it about a month ago, and we took a 75-minute U.S.-made safe. And we never – we built a burn room, but it was really it was too small. We may do it again. We never got a good convective fire, but the safe went 21 minutes. Huh. And then we put the fire out. It was 400 degrees at 21 minutes. With the fire out – the safe continued to go up. And at 37 minutes, it was over 600 degrees inside the safe because the metal is so hot and the heat keeps transferring. So are there any, any uh, positive stories of people like, oh, my, my safe saved my gun collection? Like, well, you never hear about this kind of stuff. You talk to, I talk, tell, talk to any firefighter, do guns, save, do guns survive fires? But there's a more important thing to consider. You've been convinced, we all have that, Oh, you want a good fire rating. Why? You don't. Because here's the other side of it. That safe that we cooked went over, it was like 680 degrees where it maxed out. So now you want, let's, let's suppose you have, now if you had wood guns in there, they're burned out. Mm -hmm. What if you have chassis guns? What if you've got AR platform? What if you got nothing with wood on it? You don't know how hot your safe got. Everything in your gun that's hardened steel Above 380 degrees, the hardening, you start losing hardening. Now, annealing, it's another hardening process. Barrels are annealed. Annealing breaks down at mid-600. Anything mm -hmm. above 650, 6, you know, 670, and that, anything above that, your annealing process starts to decay. So again, are you going to fire, let's say, a 300 Win Mag bolt gun that was in a fire and you don't know how hot it got? Your I'm not going to say this company, on the air, but I'm going to sell all those guns. <laughs> well, your insurance if you've got insurance on your firearms, they're going to buy them all. Regardless yeah. of how they look, they do not want you to fire them. They don't mm -hmm. want the liability. But yeah. the idea is if your guns are in a fire, they are they're walked. toast. 
They're walnuts, and they should not be fired. Uh-huh. Same thing with ammo. Putting ammo, like they've, I've seen companies make fire-rated ammo safes. I'm like, guys, if ammo's on a fire, you get rid of it. But right. we're being sold. There's there's this bill of goods being sold about this concept of fire ratings, and it's like two things: a just by insurance, but the other side is the risk of fire in America is shockingly low. And every decade, it's going down lower and lower and lower. Um, we actually, I looked, at, spent a lot of time looking at insurance data on fires. I think it's 87% of all fires are contained, are in the kitchen, and the fire's contained within a pot or it's within the oven. Mo- almost all claims are smoke related. Open flame damage in a home is extremely rare. And when it does occur, it's usually confined to one room or corner of a room. And the cause is typically human error. It's either smoking, candles, you know, some sort, something that they're doing um, incorrectly. So I, I guess I'm in the majority of consumers. So I didn't get this safe for a fire, right? right. I just got it for a place to put my guns right. up when I have kids and, you know, I was like, well, at least they're, they're not organized because, like I said, they're all bumping each other. That, that yep. But at least they're in one place in some form yeah. of organized chaos. But everyone that, that gets one of these safes is like, oh, plus now you're protected from a fire. Like, but And we all just buy that. Like, I mean, I, I, you know, I was like, oh, OK, well, that's, that's like a nice plus, I guess. And you just take it at face value. Like, oh, cool. If, if my house was burned down, at least my guns are going to be OK. What yeah, a load it, of crap! <laughs> it, it, it is. It's well. The other side that that, that kind of knock on wood. I hope it, nobody's home burns. Well, it's just the part that kind of ticks me off that a lot of people don't know is now. Do you use a golden rod or any kind of desiccant or any kind of anti-corrosion things in your safe? Mm-mm. Okay, because the industry sells millions of dollars a year. And you know the products I'm talking about. Oh to yeah. Stop to stop rust in safes. Well, why? You know, if a gun is properly cleaned and oiled. It's not going to corrode. Mm-hmm. And so my grandfather had shotguns and rifles in a glass cabinet for 50 years. They didn't Mine rust. He, and he lived we, outside of Buffalo. It's very humid in the summer. But the gun industry is selling all this stuff. Why? Well, did a little research on that as well. And now in the military, I'm required. There's materials I can and cannot use. We also build a lot of uh, museums, like high-end um some large museums have big firearms, you know, relic firearms collections, right. and we build the back end. And it's very strict what we can and cannot use. So let's look at a gun safe. You've got carpeting, not a big deal. Carpeting's held in place with a rubberized adhesive. And that adhesive stays like rubbery for the life of the safe so it doesn't dry and crack and the carpet falls. Well, to keep it from mildewing, it's impregnated with formaldehyde. Highly corrosive, banned from use in armories, banned from use in museums. Next, you look at the drywall they put in for this fire rating, which I don't think is for fire. Rating. I think they put the drywall in for weight to mm-hmm. offset the weight of the door so a safe doesn't tip over because they make the doors really heavy because they want you to think it's secure. All that drywall, drywall contains sulfur. It's part of gypsum when they mine it. Sulfur breaks down over time and emits sulfuric and sulfurous acids. You've also got um, pyrite, which is fool's gold. That's in gypsum as well. Pyrite breaks down. In fact, it's a real problem with, they called it acid. Um, the waste off of mines, when, they, when they're piling up dirt and it rains, the pyrite produces an acid runoff that's environmentally can be very damaging. In your gun safe, it's also breaking down, forming, again, sulfuric acid. 
And then you've got ferrooxidant bacteria that live on the pyrite. It's a bacteria that eats metals, used in the mining industry to strip metal from low-grade ores. It's just in drywall. It just exists there. But, it, but all that material, your guns are in there. Yeah. It's all corrosive. Now, if you ever look at a brand new safe in a store, it's been closed for a week or two, open the door, put your nose and smell, you'll smell sulfur. It's sulfuric acid. It's a vapor. Any safe that's been closed for a long time, you'll notice a slight sulfur smell. So I tell people, if you've got a traditional gun safe with all the stuff in it, open it and vent it once a week. Mine's it, open it, right now. Yeah, I can see it. It's, but it's, people don't realize. We're talking about securing our guns. I've got an open gun safe in the background. Again, again if you're in the room, there's nothing wrong with me. I, got no, I, went, to the, I went to the gun range um, yep. yesterday, and I, was, I took the gun out of the thing this morning, out of the rifle case, and was cleaning it. So that's why it's now open. But uh, now, now I know I should open it anyway. Yeah, it's uh, a lot of people don't realize that the again, and what really frustrates me, and I've met I've met with a lot of the safe manufacturers in America early on because my first thought was we should license our pro, our technology to them, and I asked a lot of these questions. I didn't get good answers, but uh, it's frustrating because they could use other materials for nominally more money. Now, mm -hmm. another piece that you know when you look at firearm storage, like our solution, you know, you got to go to the range. So you take your gun out, now you put it in a case. And now you got to store your case, you know, all these different things, our solution, like I've got, um, you know, I've got some nice like trap guns. I go, you know, uh, sporting clays. I've got those in nice cases and they go right in. They, our system holds those. So I've got, you know, I've got my hunting rifles that are open, but I've got my shotguns in the plastic or in, in one case, leather. I just grab the handle and go. So it's, hmm. it stores the gun in the case. Fascinating. And Practical. <laughs> it, it is. It, it, again, we we look at. There's making, guns in there that I'm like, oh, I should shoot that gun sometime. But you've been you've been banished to the back of the safe. I totally forgot about you. I know it's uh, it's funny. We've got guns here that haven't been fired. I was talking to. We were moving some stuff around and say, you know, I haven't shot this gun in seven years. You know, it's oh, it's, it's definitely uh, some of those in there. Yeah, it's and the but when you bought that firearm, you couldn't wait to get to the range and shoot it. It's like, oh, it's my new cool gun, and now it's uh, it's just like a kid with their Christmas toy. Oh yeah, you know, it's that's it's a, cool until the next thing, until you get the next one. That's what makes yeah, secure. It's a great uh, Christmas gift because guys, we we all go back to like as kids, the erector set gifts, the the gifts that allowed you the Christmas day you're building something with our. I mean, our solution they they sit there and play with the with uh adult legos you know it's uh, right i like it i like it. it's not a bad not a bad way to go but uh yeah you know what it's what we're doing is working we're uh we've spent very little on advertising the company's mm -hmm. growing like crazy we made ink magazine's fastest growing companies in america 2018 and 2021 and uh we're just now this year um i've got chris my head of marketing and we're building a marketing organization and Nice. You can really start scaling things up a little bit. And yeah. uh, well, and I'll be honest, until um and maybe it is because you don't market and but until Baker told me about you guys, I had I had not heard of secure tactical. Yeah, we we I mean, not intentionally, but we kind of fly under the radar screen in a lot of areas. Mm -hmm. And there's certain groups and certainly like all the military guys that get out, most of those guys know us because they used us in when they were in the military. If they if they yeah. were in armories, if they were active, um you know, team guys, stuff like that. They all know us, but, uh, and there's a lot of, uh, 
you know, the tactical, tactical magazines that have written a lot of articles about us because of the military tie. But the the broad, you know, the, the big blue ocean of people, we always say, how do you get to the people you can't get to? Most people don't know who we are. We're still. You know, what we're still- do you think about our um, incompetent, fearless leader and it's, his claim it's- that he's going to ban ARs? And what would that do to the marketplace as far as, as you guys? Because, a lot, I mean, let's be honest, a lot of people are putting black rifles in these safes. Yeah, it's I don't it doesn't I mean that doesn't affect us, I don't think, because people are still gonna buy firearms and we yeah. secure all of them. Um I I mean I think he's blowing a lot of smoke just because that's what he wants to do. I they don't have the votes, they don't have no, they just lost the house. There's no way they're gonna do it. No, and they don't there's a lot of Democrats that can't take that vote either. What I what if I mean the dynamics that I look at, a lot they don't really talks about it, but are the Democrats going off a cliff and You've got Pelosi, Schumer, and that whole group, they're all late 70s into their mid 80s. Mm-hmm. They're all they're aging out. They're gonna be hell, they're gonna be dead in 10 years. I mean, it's just they're old. Well, Biden might be dead in a year. Like <laughs> you're right. But what they haven't done though is all leaders, it's you know, as a leader, you are part of being a leader is training your replacements in the military. You're always training up the guys, train, you're working up the ranks because you know you're gonna be gone. Yeah. This group of people, these baby boomers, will not let go of power. I've never seen anything like it, and they're not allowing any oxygen to any true, well-spoken, articulate people under them. You go from Pelosi, Schumer, um, you had Reed. He's I mean, all these old people. Who's next? You got the squad. They're the next one. They have the they have, have oh, the microphone. Yeah, but the Democrat Party's going off a leadership cliff. Well, here's the problem: with they don't them, have any. Is they have let the they've let the extreme side oh, of their yeah. party hijack the rest of it and the, and the republicans you know mcconnell oh, could same- go too and that would make me really happy like he's a dinosaur uh yeah. but we have i think decent young promising I mean, politicians i, I, I agree i they agree. do not and if they do if those people speak out and be like hey you know what um actually we don't think it's a good idea to give a 10 year old kid uh gender you know yeah hormones blocking hormones if you speak out and say that they cancel you so they've let the party be i mean and they and it's the same thing like what we saw uh i mean all this stuff coming out on twitter like we we all knew that they use social media to to win an election in 2020 now it's all common knowledge and like you and i were probably like well yeah we told you that then like i was living it my instagram went from uh 144,000 followers in in November of 2020, they just turned they turned the faucet off. They're like, yep. no more for you. And it's been the same. It hasn't grown in two years when it, it was go- growing exponentially. Like, and they, I didn't uh, change anything. Yeah, we're no. we're shut down. We've always been shut down on most of our advertising. Um, I'm hoping with with Musk and Twitter that uh, that's kind of a, a floodgate scenario, something where it's like, because again. These companies want to make money, but I'm hoping that Twitter does well and things go really well. Where the world's like, you know what? We we this is crazy. We gotta we gotta allow. I mean, there's a point where the Republicans can get a hold of the Senate, maybe even the presidency in two years, that they could put some legislation in that that basically allows for free speech. Isn't that crazy that we have to have that conversation? Uh, it's, like, it's, I never it's, would have thought. You're you're older than me, and. Yeah. 
you i mean we've never in your life have you seen this and i never thought no but it's it's the media has been crazy liberal for quite a while and it's always been a i've got liberal friends liberal family members oh me too and it's just like it's it's well it's easy for you because that's all you i mean it's all you hear that that's everybody's support you know your whole media organization supporting your view but i look at i don't listen to news i don't i don't watch fox i don't watch any of these things anymore but People watch news not to get news. They watch it to validate what they already believe. Mm -hmm. Liberals watch liberal news because they just want to validate, yeah, Trump's an asshole. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. it's it's uh it's like a rally cry. It's really kind of crazy. It's I tell everybody, don't watch, read news. Read, you know, get there's there's some was it 1440? That's not bad. Um, yeah. but I can't I can't stand any of them anymore. It's, no, it's all propaganda on both sides of the fence. Unfortunately, it is. It used to be Fox News at six for the first 12 minutes or eight minutes. Shepard Smith would go through and read the news. And then he says, all right, we're going to cut the commercial. We'll be right back with our panel. With a pa Why do you need a panel? Right. The panel is a bunch of people to tell us what we're supposed to think. Mm -hmm. And right, he's turned it off. It's, it's just crazy. It but is. It's interesting. That, that, that whole apparatus, though, is about to die because I've got kids. My kids are now all late teens. They're all college or, or old or mid twenties. None of them watch the news. No, I mean, they just, that's just not how they no. get it. Well, they consume their information and what they believe to be true on social media. Absolutely. That's where, and you know. so if you look at the demographics of these news organizations, we actually looked at advertising, you know, if we're going to advertise Fox news hits a, hits a conservative group. Then you look at the demographic their average viewer is 73. <laughs> right. It's all senior citizens. Yeah. So next 10 years, they're they're gonna be they're all those networks will be gone. Yeah. You know, I'm not well, sure. Well, somebody still has to put like decent programming on, like NFL football. So you know that no, that that will that will exist. Yeah. But the news, the 24 hour news type thing, I don't see that. That does not have a future. I, we don't, I don't have agree. 20. Yeah, because you're gonna get it on social media. Absolutely. Which, but yeah. which is, but also, is that a good thing? Because social, you can say whatever you. Well, one side can say whatever they want; the other side can't. You know, <laughs> and that's well. There's, there's a. No, the problem with social media is there's no what what I would call immediate accountability. Meaning, if you're at a out at a nightclub or you're at friends or you're at a park or somebody, and somebody walks up and gets you, makes a, a statement in your face. They got to deal with the repercussions of what they're saying to somebody in person. Online, they can type anything they want. It's right. like somebody, it's like, it's like people driving by yelling at somebody walking down the street. There's no risk. So you say whatever you want, but there's there's no, but there's also there's no strength in the, in what they're saying. It's just I've fun. always said about social media, it's a double-edged sword. And it's, you know, I'm I make part of a, my living, like utilizing that as a tool yeah. for my business. But if I could, if we could, if I could get rid of it tomorrow, would I, would I push that button? Probably. Yeah. Probably would. Because I think life was better. I think society, shoot, like, I don't want my kids on TikTok. You won't see how fast society is degraded. Get on TikTok for five minutes and look at what is acceptable to put out in a public forum. No, it's like, people, <laughs> it's mind blowing as a parent. And it's, oh, as a, I didn't really care until I was a parent. And now I well, look at the world completely different. You're right. What's, what I find fascinating right now is my kids are in their early 20s is my kids struggle to sit through a movie. 
Like we're going to watch a movie because mm-hmm. everything that, I, that I, they digest is, you know, one to two minute little clips and they'll do clips of movies. Like they know, they know a lot of movies, not because they've seen the movie because they've seen the movie cut up in the one minute clips on, right. on TikTok, on those social media or a platform it is. But I find attention spans on younger people. It's tough. It's, it's, you know, I'm not sure how communication is going to work. You know, the the C-suite in some of these big corporations in 30 years is going to be a series of of, of 10-second conversations. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. not sure how they're going to do it because I see a real challenge with people in their attention span. Yeah. And uh, it's only going to go, it's only going to get worse too. So it does, but I do think there, I always think that there's, you know, everything flows. And like right now, we're in this crazy world of um trans the all the crazy goofy stuff but we'll move out of it you know i go back i grew up in the 60s early 70s and we had the vietnam war we had um riots we had i mean there was so much violence we had the shooting at kent state you had the democrat national convention riots and you had people being assassinated every leader with me people were being assassinated we and, and the, the true risk of nuclear war Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, as crazy as that seemed, then we came into the 70s of crazy inflation and bad politics, got into the 80s of much better politics, and then we just roared through the 90s. So it's we're in a crazy time right now, but I do I do think that things cycle, and I think there's going to be kind of an awakening in America. The leadership of the Dems are going is going off a cliff. I see more and more moderate Democrats who just do not cannot identify what their party is about. I'm right. not saying they're Republicans or they're going to go, but they're looking at candidates differently. So I think it's, uh, you're, I'm me, you're saying there's hope. Yeah. I, I, I think there is, um, in my lifetime, I, I hope so. Yeah. You know, I'd like to see, I'd like to see a conservative government. I'd like to see taxes lowered dramatically, or I'd like to see the tax policy completely changed away from income tax. Um, because income tax is a tax on growth. It's a tax on middle income people created by very, very wealthy individuals back in the, at the end of the industrial revolution. It's the wrong way to tax people. Is there anything more ironic than a party saying we want to just essentially, you know, ban ARs and if they could disarm us, they would, right? That's what they want to do. And then in the same breath, they're like, Hey, Ukrainian citizens, here's ARs for all of you. Like, is is the irony lost on anyone else? How ridiculous. Oh, wait, maybe if the Ukrainian citizens already had the ARs, we wouldn't have to be giving them to them and they could defend themselves. Well, it's one of the biggest miscalculations that I saw in the Democrat Party, um, the whole defund police. And I used to do a lot, spend a lot of time in uh, Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did an advertising agency we worked with. I've done a lot of rep groups up. There's a lot of corporate headquarters of when we were in retail stores. I was there all the time, and it's an incredible city. And then decentralized police, they got their riots going on. The, the mayor is saying, we're going to defund police. And you had a lot of, li- it's a very liberal city. You had a whole lot of very liberal Democrats in their very high-end condos in downtown looking at riots in the streets. and the police are nowhere to be found. The police butt pulled out. Right. And they look to their politicians. Oh, we're going to defund police and use, you know, we'll use welfare workers and this. And the people for the first time in their life realized the only thing that kept a crowd from coming up the stairs and, and killing them was luck. And 
that group of people at the end of that, for the first time in their lives, realized, if I'm going to be secure, I can't look to the government. I've got to look to myself. And I've got, I know so many people that were anti-gun liberal Democrats that bought their first firearms after those series of events. And several of which people we've worked with, you know, within, you know, contractors and stuff said, look, I was, I'm a really liberal guy and stuff, but they buy their first, they buy a handgun. They go start going to the range and training. They find they really like it. Next thing you know, they've got a rifle. They've got an AR-15 and they're, I'm not saying they're converting over. We love the second amendment. They just fell in love with the idea, the dis, the discipline of shooting and the clarity of thought when you're really focused on, you know, that single point focus of doing it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we had more first time gun buyers yeah. in 2020 than at any point in American history. And the first time gun buyers were predominantly Democrat. Right. Right. Um, well, yeah. Because ammo.com. You, made, you, you defunded the police. You made our cities less safe. And now we, now we it was a huge, huge miscalculation because now you've got a lot of districts that are Democrat districts. The politicians, I mean, the people are all they, they don't want their guns taken away. Right. Because they know the government cannot protect you. And they should. I mean, that's not the idea, but there's a lot of things working. The, the demographics of America are changing. We're going to end up with six or seven highly populated states and a lot of very rural states over the next hundred years. Yeah. When you look at that in politics, the Senate goes Republican eventually, it may never go back Democrat because as more as you're going to have this handful of states highly populated, they'll probably be Democrat, but all the more rural states will all be Republican and they'll never be able to flip them unless they adopt more moderate um, stances. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's, uh, I think it's looking good as, as long as what frustrates me is we got so many Republicans in office that have no balls. They're just, they're just, Rhinos. yeah, they're just, right. They're so afraid to shake it up. I don't know. It seems crazy. Yeah. But. Yeah. Uh, there's one of them. There's one of them from tech. Well, uh, our Senator Cornyn, not a fan anymore. Right? Oh, really? I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't follow yeah. Texas politics other than what's the deal with Beto O'Rourke? Is he now? Oh, well, the good just, news is, is I got to walk down the street and help some of my neighbors that moved here from California, pull up their Beto signs for the third time. <laughs> yeah. So he ran, but, he ran for uh Senate. Against Cruz, lost. Yep. He ran for president. Didn't even get out of the primaries. Yep. It, it, and it turns out, if you have, if you're on record as saying, "Hell yes, I'm going to take their AR-15s," not a good thing to do in Texas. And so when he ran for governor, he got his ass kicked. It wasn't even close. He lost by like I think eight points or something. Yeah, it was but a landslide. Is he running at this point because he actually wants to run, or is he a mask? He's got. He's raised a lot of money, mm-hmm. and when you raise a lot of money. You can live a life. Now, technically, campaign money can't be used for personal stuff, but campaign stuff can be like dinners with 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 people, important people, um, trips to areas because you're doing investigate. I mean, is he just living large off of this war chest, and that's what his game plan is? I th- I don't I don't think I think the I think it's over. I think the gravy yeah. train has ended for him at this yeah. point. But, you know, whether he becomes a political commentator or, or what, I don't know what the future holds. For I, I, I don't see him gaining. But we are blessed beyond, you know, we're very fortunate to be to have rid ourselves of him for the third time yeah. because the dude, dude he, he walks around with a shirt saying, don't mess with trans kids. Like, how about don't make trans kids? Yeah. And, you know, when I, and, and I'll, I'll say this and we're talking about some really controversial stuff right now, but yeah. In this country, I believe at the age of 18, you can do whatever you want to do. 
And if you want to do that as an adult, you have one life to live. Yep. By all means, pursue whatever level, whatever your idea yep. of happiness is, pursue that. If my kids came to me at 18 and said, dad, this is the thing, I'm going to be like, well, yeah. you're my kid and I'm going to love you regardless. Uh, I think that that flies in the face of science, but let's talk about it. And if that's your decision, fine. What we okay. do not do is give puberty blockers, gender, it's, I'm going to say mutilating surgeries to children that can't vote, can't buy cigarettes, can't buy beer, can't do, can't drive a car, not even 16 years old. That's what we do not do. And I think that's another thing, like we're talking about an awakening in America, like parents are are not okay with states basically saying the kids belong to us. No, we're the kids' parents. We yeah. pay the taxes. We will decide, not you. That's uh, I think that's the awakening that, you know, and we saw uh, Yunkin went in Virginia, uh, the governor, he yep. ran on that platform. Yep. So I, I think you're right. I think there's a, I look at that as it's just, it's, it is pure. It's beyond child abuse. Yeah. But in, I mean, some of the statistics that are troubling though, is the rate of suicide for young people is growing very quickly in America. And by, by confusing men, women, boy, girl, that's always been a hard backstop. I mean, transitioning from a child to an adult is not easy for anybody. I think women probably, I think if you listen to Jordan Peterson, which I really like, mm -hmm. women may have a tougher time hormonally than men, but having that, this is a man, this is a woman as a hard backstop gives you a point of reference. When you, when you cloud that, there's no, there's no anchor points and the kids have, they have no idea what's going on. And a lot of this is driven by the, the ultra liberal education system, which I think is about yes. to collapse. Uh, we got a little college in our town that just, it just closed. Um, I think you're looking at a tsunami of colleges closing and a major shift in education. Um, we are now at a point where graduating senior classes are now getting smaller. There's also, there has to be a move towards trades and skills. It's going because it is so lucrative to go into a trade right now, as opposed to going to college. Now, I didn't go to college. I always tell I didn't go to college, but everybody that works for me did. Um, you know, it's just, it wasn't yeah. in the cards for me. It's not how I learn. I don't do well in a classroom situation, but I'm looking at kids. They're, they're getting these four-year degrees. They're graduating with 80 grand in debt with a degree in business, whatever it is, but women's and you studies. Get a job and you're, but you get now they go, they get an entry-level job at 36,000 a year. Great. That's what okay. my first job out of college paid. My first job in radio was thirty six yeah. grand. Then the it's, economy tanked, and I got a I got a uh, a decrease in salary. Took a pay cut, yep. and it went to twenty two thousand dollars just to keep my job, working eighty hours a week at a radio station. Yeah, and I had uh, the debt. Now take this. Take a couple of kids who go into that's no, electrical. Now Syracuse has a program where it's a two year internship, and you start at one hundred fifteen thousand a year. Mm. Think about that. Think about the difference swing economically. Kids yeah. going into HVAC. And a lot of kids don't realize when you're in these trades, like you get a job, you get your, you know, you get your associate's degree in business, whatever. You get a job, you walk into a cubicle, you sit at a desk and you look at, you analyze data all day. Or every morning you get up, you're, you're going to a location, you're solving problems, you're building. Like, like if you're HVAC, you're solving heating, air conditioning. It's like playing with Tinker Toys all day. You're getting paid to do it. And every day is a different challenge. You're challenging your brain. You do that for four or five years, learn the skills, and then go off, create your own business. You can be making an unbelievable living 
and be in complete charge of your future. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't require college. It just doesn't. Yeah. But I think YouTube education is coming out, is, is, is going to be coming on strong. The whole tuition bubble is simply was driven by let's make money free or cheap. There's no reason the college costs what it costs. Right. It's gone up 800 was it 800% more than inflation is that something I can't I'm not it's that absurd, might not, yeah. Yeah, but it's when the government said let's make education affordable. Okay, everybody gets a loan who wants one. So much money came into the market, bank or the the college simply raised their rates cuz they could. Mm-hmm. But uh I think that's that's Right now, you've got classes are getting smaller. We got several small private schools around us that are that may very well be gone in the next three years. Right, and I think that's going to continue. And you're going to start seeing colleges all of a sudden start marketing on the idea of value. All of a sudden, you say, "Hey, we're only we're only six thousand a year. Why don't you come here?" That that if I see that ad, we'll we'll. I don't know. I might lose my mind. They're going to have to do something because there's no advertising on a value. That would be insane. There is no value proposition. All they do is gouge. My uh, my youngest brother, who is pretty far on the left side of the spectrum, he uh, he was a junior in college and he dropped out and started bartending. It was just going to take a year off, you know, whatever, find his way in life. Started making eighty thousand dollars a year bartending. It was like. Why would I go back to? He never went back to college. He's like, why would I go back to college? Because I'll be making, like you said, thirty six thousand dollars a year, and I'm making eighty grand here, and I'm working three days a week bartending. Yeah, and he and he uh, developed relationships there because it's a everything. Every day is something different. You're interacting with people, and when he finally was like, all right, I'm I'm I don't want to bartend anymore. I want to I don't want to get home at one in the morning. Uh, He met someone through Mary Kay, and now is in like a management position at Mary Kay. Um, without any college education, well, without a degree, it's, it's people don't don't they underestimate or don't appreciate the dynamic nature of those types of jobs. When you work for a company in a cubicle, you're doing like you get your you get your four year degree and you get a, there's so many jobs you're doing the same thing every day. Mm-hmm. It's like I find that you want a, a job where you're interacting with different people all the time. You're always exposed to new things. That's how that's that's where the magic happens. That's where you see opportunities. Yeah. And then act at them. But well, it is interesting. This has been a fascinating conversation. We cover we we cover a pretty broad spectrum yeah, here. We have. But I certainly enjoyed it. Um, if you want to tell folks where they can find your products. Um, we are direct to consumer. Again, just okay. trying to keep costs down. So just Google secure it, secure and it together, secure it and uh we're all over the place. It's secureatgunstorage.com and secure tacticals are military. So direct to consumer. There was a time when you guys were in the retail yeah. space. We pulled out because again, I found this out when I'm on a plant tour at Liberty Safe. The plant manager, talkative guy. And I learned a lot about safe industry. Gun safes are designed to look good empty. The interior of a gun safe is designed to look good empty because that's how you evaluate the safe at the time of purchase. You go to a distributor looking at all these safes. Well, what's your point? You look for the one that looks the best, but they're Mm -hmm. empty. Our safes are designed to hold firearms properly per military standards of how everything is done. But our safes don't look good empty. In fact, people didn't understand what they were looking at when they looked at our safes in a gun safe store, because they're, the inside is empty except these adjustable components. Nobody got it. We didn't get good sell-through. 
So we said, you know what, let's go digital. We brought everything back in house, built a, a really nice website. We use a lot of video, a lot of, we have a lot of digital content to show the level of flexibility of what we can do. And sales took off. Mm. So it's, uh, it's, and also when you're selling through like Bass Pro, they make 40%, 40% of the price you pay goes to the store. Mm-hmm. That's a lot yeah. of margin. That's a lot of money. I mean, yeah. we have to raise our prices significantly to sell through stores. And uh, we just don't want to do it. I mean, it's, it's, it's not cheap. We try to keep our costs down. And another, another point for not going to college, I get blasted for some of my products are made in China. And I get blasted for it. And I have a very simple response. Send me the name of a company who can make my product. I will gladly move. Making in China is not cheap. I'm paying a 40% tariff. I'm paying crazy shipping. The cost actually in China is going up dramatically. Their labor costs are going up. It's becoming very expensive. I don't make in America. It's not because of money, because I can't find a company that can make my product. Two issues I run against. Either they they can't handle the workload mm-hmm. or they don't build to my tolerances. And there's a lot of this is there's a lot of metal bending companies that just don't do that level of precision work. And I, I get that. But we put out requests for proposals and solicitations all the time looking for a U.S. manufacturer. Here's where it's going. The average press brakeman, metal bender in America is 58 years old. The average machinist is almost 60. In 10 years, the metal fabrication business in America is all but gone. Nobody is going into this industry. I've got a good friend that runs a precision. um, It's a machine shop. They make aerospace components. Very high-end work. Her workers are all late 50s, and she's got one kid who's like 28 years old, went to the apprentice program. But she's selling her company because she said, I don't have a business in 10 years. I'm yeah, selling yeah. now while I can. Huh. Wow, that's, that's, that's the future. Go to I trade get, school. But I get, exactly. I get lit up in quality in China. You can get very high quality in China. You have to pay for it. You can get cheap crap in China. I mean, I'm not pro-China. I think Chinese government, these guys got their heads up their asses. And uh, I would love nothing more than to get my product made elsewhere. And we're looking at some other countries. Some of my military stuff I make in Mexico, so I make most of it in the U.S. Um, And we do a lot of manufacturing here, but I'm worried going forward over the next 10 years, unless we get kids to to bite into going to trades, it's going to be gone. And And the high schools are against it. You know, I've got a good friend, runs a metal fab business local, went to the local schools with a program to take juniors and seniors. They come two days or three days a week to his factory and go through basic training on equipment as part of schooling. They graduate through a two-year apprentice program, making 35000 a year. Then they start at 66000 a year working in his shop. Guidance department would not let him present. They shut him down hard. No debt. The guidance department is measured. Their performance standard is the percentage of kids that go to college. We don't need any more college graduates. We need no. We need people who know how to build stuff. Right. right. It's it's just crazy, but it's going to change. That is going to change. It's already it's happening. So thirty six thousand dollars in the and you're getting paid for two years is to learn. Yeah. To learn and you come yep. out with no debt. No debt, and you're making sixty thousand a year. Then 
Do you know, wow. can you imagine? And then being, high school is like, no, that's a terrible idea. Why would we ever no, do that? Again, you're 20 years old, 60 grand a year. in this country. Just again, you're going to, you're going to buy yourself a nice pickup truck at 60 grand a year. If you're smart, you save up your money. You're going to own a house. You're, you'll be, you'll have your first house by the time you're 24. Mm-hmm. I mean, versus a kid coming out of college, they get married, husband and wife. They're each carrying 80 grand worth of debt. They're, they're spending, they're combined, they're spending 600 bucks a month just on college debt. They're not going to buy a house to their 36. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. It's, but it's changing now. Right now, um, I was listening to statistics. I think it was a podcast listening to um, colleges right now are 60, 63%, 62% women. Oh. A lot of young men are not going to college. The problem is they're not going into trades. They're taking service jobs and marking time because they're not sure what they want to do. Right. So they're just they're taking non-skilled jobs and working that. But they're if, bartending. They're doing stuff that's yeah. a lot of a lot of Starbucks type stuff. But yeah, but a barista. But they're, the comment in the podcast was if colleges go to 65% women, women will stop going too. That was a statistic. There were some argument points on that. They're saying that there's a point when colleges can become too heavily female and women won't go either because oh no guys. You know what? If if I knew that stat when I was like getting ready to go to college, I'd be like, woohoo, well, 65%. Yeah, but again, I may I, not be the best looking guy here, but it doesn't matter. When I was in my college, what would have been, you know, in the uh, early 80s, it was predom- it was far more men than women. But that's, right. that's been shifting over the last 20 years. And now it's, it's a chunk more women than men going to school. Hmm. Um, but I still think it works out. I'm still optimistic. Um, but uh, I'm also building a nice retreat on my 500 acres of land. I'm going to sit and look at the sunset. <laughs> <laughs> We're building the bunker, folks. That's right. The, All right. Well, I certainly appreciate the time. It's been a great conversation. Great. And uh, yeah, I'm going to have to get one of your... One of your safes in here. And yeah, let's uh I'll get with Chris. We'll have to have a power. I'll get that replace that uh, big horn with uh yeah. Is the room you're in semi-secure or is it uh just office? Just a just a studio yeah. here, yeah. My we office. Build, studio we, we can build similar what I got behind me and uh yeah. Like and I'm that. just storing guns, but this stuff, I've got the same setup in my shop at my house. I'm building a V8 engine, now I'm restoring an old car. So I've got all decked out with car parts and tools and everything. Nice. You can nice. do a lot with it, but uh, yeah. Well, I hope you. Uh, I hope you punch your tag on a on a late season muzzleloader. I, I'm I'm pretty confident that I'll get something else in the freezer, enough to get me through. Right on. All right, man. Well, thanks, Tom. I appreciate it. I appreciate it as well. It's been it's been it's been fun. Again, time flies when you're on a podcast, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. All right. Take care, brother. All right. Thanks a lot. So there you have it, Tom Kubinick of Secure Tactical, uh, awesome dude, and uh, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed that discussion. Um, be sure to uh, check out their safes, and who knows, maybe we'll, uh, maybe we'll work with Tom and that company in the future. Uh, certainly, something I think it's something that I think people don't really think about. Like, why do I need to pay for a safe that's fire rated for X degrees when? You don't even want to shoot those guns anyway. <laughs> if, if you had a fire, uh, just let the insurance. Cl- I mean, you know, God forbid that you did have a fire, but what what does it what does it even matter? Uh, and then how easy they are to just cut right through if there was actually Jim Shockey's safe uh, was broken into when they were out of town one time. All of their family guns stolen out of their place in uh, Canada, uh, so British Columbia. Um, 
and they I think those thieves cut through that safe if I remember right. But anyway, uh, fascinating stuff with Tom. That's going to do it for this episode of Campfire Conversations. I'm Cable Smith. Thanks for tuning in, and y'all have a great week in the outdoors. Yellow soldier on a dead mind. Listen, lover, won't you call me? Well, I'm a sucker for some harmony.